Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. So, uh, welcome to the second episode of Lab Talk with Laura. Uh, today's guests are Laura Hancock and Evan Kieras. Uh, Laura is a PhD candidate in the Organismic and Evolutionary Biology program and resides in the Environmental Conservation Department here at UMass. She got her bachelor's in biology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia. She was born in Virginia but moved around the Gulf Coast as a kid before finally ending up back in Virginia before college. In her free time, she enjoys working on initiatives to improve graduate student life as the UMass Graduate Student Senate representative for her program, as well as helping to plan outreach and science communication workshops with the Office of Professional Development. But most importantly, she likes to hang out with her two guinea pigs. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show, Laura. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, our other guest today is Evan Kiris. He's a master's student in the Environmental Conservation Department, currently studying urban biodiversity and environmental education. He's originally from Yorktown, New York. <clears throat> he did his undergraduate in biology at Boston University. Beyond his research, he represents his department as a senator in the UMass Graduate Student Senate and, like Laura, works with the Office of Professional Development to promote outreach and public engagement among grad students on campus. For fun, he plays contra dance music on the clarinet and more urgently is an avid Pokemon Go player. <laughs> Level 37 Mystic. It's true. Okay. <laughs> Is that, so that's still going on? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's why I'm here. I thought I was just brought on the show to talk about Pokemon Go. <laughs> okay. Um, we'll get to that later in the show. Um, for his research, he studies patterns of biodiversity in cities throughout the world, especially in relation to socioeconomic inequality. Um, thank you for being on the show, Evan. Thank you for having me. Um, and guest co-hosting today is a uh, local comic and good friend of mine, Matt Woodland, uh, best known for writing the jingle uh, that you heard at the beginning of the show. Thanks for being on the show, Matt. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Okay, so um, we're going to start with Laura. Uh, Laura, could you just uh, tell me what, what kind of research you do? For my master's, I was working with an invasive plant, um, garlic mustard. It actually does smell like garlic, if anyone's wondering. Um, and so I've been working on a project for the past two years looking at this long-term, um, these long-term population dynamics of this invasive plant across three growth habitats. Um, and any sort of trait variation across these growth habitats because what's really interesting about garlic mustard, besides the fact it's just an invasive plant um, and can screw up a bunch of stuff ecologically and economically, um, it's starting to invade these new like growth environments. So generally, I think when people think about plants, they think about them being associated with a very specific type of environment. So this is way more broad than what I'm talking about with my um, my study species. But like cacti, like you think about them being in a desert, like a hot, dry environment, sunny. Um, and garlic mustard um, can grow in sort of these more sunny like habitats that are like near roads, kind of away from forests. They can also grow kind of at the edge of these forests where it's shady. Um, and generally the soil is a lot more moist and there's a lot less light available. And they can also, they have been invading in the U.S. in into forest understories. And so like in New England, forests I feel like are very iconic. And so that's like a big problem because we're wondering how, how they're invading these new habitat types, like what they're gonna do to the forest. And so I'm trying to help figure out like what's been happening, like what's the variation there and like 
how might this relate to how it can damage the forest? So the concern is that they're going to like squeeze out other plants? Yeah, so one really interesting thing about garlic mustard that I feel like everyone know if you study garlic mustard like you know this um <laughs> it's like an allele it's an allelopathic plant so it releases these phytochemicals it sounds really boring but it's pretty cool if you think about the concept um it releases these phytochemicals into the soil that specifically can disrupt like tree seedling growth because um, it, it uh, kills these microorganisms in the soil that associate with these plants that can help them to grow and so if garlic mustard is invading the forest understory where these seedlings are growing it can affect how these forests are going to look in the future Wow, so you you said it's a phytochemical it releases that yeah. What does that mean, phytochemical? So a chemical from plants. Oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I don't study plants. You can tell. Yeah, phyto. <laughs> so basically, like a lot of biological words will have like phyto before it, and that just means plant. Cool. Yeah. They're phyto words. Yeah. Plant words. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, riddle me this: um, when you say invasive plant, what uh, what's an invasive plant? Good question. Thank you so much. <laughs> so there are various definitions, um, but generally, if you're approaching it from like a management framework, so like you're trying to help um, reduce that species or eradicate it, um, the, the two main qualifiers are that it's a non-native plant, so it's not historically from that area. So garlic mustard's originally from Europe and Asia, um, but it came over, I think it was first recorded in New York in 1868, mm -hmm. um, and it's since spread. But the other part, besides it being non-native, is that it causes some sort of damage whether it be economic ecological or say public health so if it's an invasive plant it's not really affecting the ecology um, or economics but maybe it's causing a ton of new allergies in like the human population and where it is mm -hmm. that would also be considered invasive okay and indirectly would be having economic damage because these people would then need to go to the doctor and get allergy medication all this stuff so mm -hmm. yeah so yeah in short it's non-native and causes some sort of damage is um so garlic and mustard are two things that I'm a fan of, <laughs> and not to say that I'm yeah. in favor of the garlic mustard, but is it is it edible? It is. People eat it not not often. Actually, I think um, why it was first brought over was because people would cultivate it like in gardens. Um, it's kind of like spicy. Um, I've never personally eat, eaten it, but one of the ways you can identify it is that if you like rip the leaves, it smells a lot like garlic. Um, and so people will like put it in salads. They'll make like hmm. pesto out of it. Um, if more people did eat it, it probably wouldn't be so invasive. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Like, do you think that's, like, an effort we should be huh. pushing? Like, yeah. Matt's a cook, right? Uh, yes. Have you ever cooked with garlic mustard? I never have. <laughs> I've cooked with mustard, I've cooked with garlic, but never, uh, like, in plant form. Yeah. So if you're listening to the program and you want to go find garlic mustard, what you shouldn't do is shake all the seeds on your walk home <laughs> out into different habitat and, yep. and plant it. You know, while you're there, just bring it home safely and grind it up and put it in your pasta. And I do want to put this qualifier because I feel like I really need to in case people are interested in eating it. So one way that people manage garlic mustard is by spraying herbicides on it. So unless you're personally growing it or know the condition it's been in, you don't want to eat it because you might be eating herbicide and, you know, dogs might be peeing on it, whatever. <laughs> it's just extra spice. Yeah. Yeah. But so I'd, I'd wash it first. <laughs> okay. So what did it, what did studying garlic mustard entail? Like, what did you have to do to for your study? So basically all I did was all of my sites were at the Harvard Forest, if anyone knows where that is, in Petersham, Massachusetts. Um, so I had these three sites where I just laid down these transect lines. So it's just like laying down a long measuring tape um, in a straight line. And then every so often I would just count the number of plants and I would tag a couple of these plants and measure their height and the number of fruits they were producing and seeds and things like that. Um, so it was a lot of counting. 
Do you know a lot about other invasive species in this area? No. <laughs> garlic mustard specialist. Yeah, garlic mustard specialist. So I worked as a gardener last summer, and one thing that I found out is that, like, forget-me-nots are considered. Do you know what forget-me-nots look like? Oh, I have heard of it. They're little blue flowers. Yes. And those are considered an invasive species, but I don't really know mm. what harm they're causing based mm. on, like, the definitions that you laid out for us. If I had to guess, and in the back of my mind, I feel like I have heard of the species, but it was called a different name. I think it outcompetes native plants, and so it's just a worry because it's like reducing biodiversity, which is just like the number of species in an area. Do you want to talk um, more about the work that you're going to be doing for your PhD? So for my PhD, I really want to work with um, an endangered species of bat out in Arizona, New Mexico. Um, it, it actually migrates in from Mexico during the summer. Um, and it's frugivorous and nectivorous, which means that it eats fruit and drinks nectar. It also eats pollen. Um, and so it interacts with um, like agave plants, which is where tequila comes from, um, and different types of like these iconic cacti that are out in the desert. Um, and so I'm really excited to see how it, how this species interacts with these plants, how it affects the ecosystems, its foraging behavior. So like when it's searching for food, what's it doing? Because um, not much is known about it. What's the name of the bat? Um, I'm going to butcher this. I'm pretty sure the scientific name is Leptonicturus yerbwinae, but I'm pretty sure I mispronounced that, but it's called a lesser long-nosed bat. Lesser long-nosed bat? Yep. <laughs> so does it have like a not very long nose? What does that mean? No, so it actually does have a long nose, which is kind of special to like getting into flowers to get nectar, um, but there's two other nectivorous species out there, um, the Mexican long nose and the greater long nose, but I could be wrong about that. I think it's just like a way of like separating them and maybe it has like a slightly smaller like nose than the other ones but I'm not really sure why it's the lesser long nose compared to the others. Do you think that it might have like an inferiority complex because <laughs> <laughs> it's called the lesser long nose? That's kind of that, brutal. Yeah. Yeah. That's horrible. I could study that. <laughs> see how they feel about the day. Do the do the do you know if the lesser and the greater occupy the same areas? I'm not sure if the greater long nose is actually a common name for any species. I feel like it is, but um, it does overlap its range with at least, it overlaps its range with both of the other species. One of them, the, um, it's Leptonicturus nivalis, I can't remember the common name, um, but it's much less. It's a very, very small area in New Mexico. But then the other one, which I think is the Mexican long-nosed, it overlaps the range a lot more. Okay. Yeah. So what kind of, and what's the environment like in this part of New Mexico where they live? Really hot. <laughs> it's the desert. Um, yeah, it's pretty hot. Well, it gets pretty chilly at night. Um, I, I haven't done any data collection for my PhD, um, but I worked with this species as a field tech several, several years ago. Um, and I loved it, which is kind of why I want to study it again. Um, but it's it's super hot in the daytime. Um, there's a rainy season where it's just raining a lot um, for a really short period of time in the summer. They call it like a monsoon season. Um, and then at night it gets, it only gets probably into like the 50s maybe, but because it's like 100 to 110 degrees in the daytime like the swing is just crazy for your body and it feels frigid so so you had interactions with this bat species when you did that work yes is it is it hands-on interaction or are you mostly observing from afar yes so whenever i'm asked like a fun fact about myself one of the things i love to say which just represents how weird i am is that i've been bitten by an endangered species of bat and most <laughs> people are like why are you telling us this? But yeah, we have to like catch them and in the process we'll catch other bats. So I've been bitten by a lot of bats in my life and I'm like excited about that. For a while I was like, please let me turn into a vampire even though I was an adult and a scientist at the time. So I knew that wasn't possible, but I was like, that would be so great. 
You're like, there's got to be a reason people think this happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me be the test case. <laughs> so have you lost track of how many bat bites you've had? I think it was like 10. I forgot, but it was like wow. 10 and like five different species. I was like really proud of that at the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so you're vaccinated for rabies, I take it? Yes. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. She's not vaccinated for a vampire. She, I think yeah. that's a cover story. Yeah. Well, yeah. At the time when I was like, please let me be a vampire, I was like, please don't let me get rabies. Like, you know, I'll, I'll take just not getting rabies, but a vampire would be great too. <laughs> So, so how do you catch the bats? Like, what's the process of interacting with these bats? And, like, what do you measure once you have them? And So there's a few different ways of catching them. Um, I think the main two are harp traps and mist nets. So they're basically just, like, the mist net just kind of looks like a badminton net, but it's made of this really fine thread, and so the bats can't see it when they're flying. Um, and so they, like, fly into it, and they get caught in it. And so then you just kind of have to untangle them from this, like, thready material. And then once you have them, generally we just either get, um, depending on what species you're looking at and what your questions are, um, weights, um, you can detect their age or at least if they're like juveniles or adults, um, you can figure out their sex, if they've had babies before. Um, sometimes you'll take measurements of like wingspan and stuff like that. How can you tell if they've had babies? So. Hopefully this isn't FCC regulated, but basically you could tell because their nipples are bigger. <laughs> like sometimes they're lactating and if you're like pushing in the right area, milk will come out. Yeah. So you've milked a bat too. Yes. <laughs> that should be your fun fact. Yep. What does bat oh. milk taste like? Never tried to oh, taste okay. it. <laughs> I bet it goes well with garlic mustard. Oh. You ain't wrong. There's like a whole culinary adventure in your research that you may not have known about. Yeah, really disgusting <laughs> culinary adventure. Let's see, do you want to talk about some of um, the other things you do outside of your research? Like you said that you're really active in the Grad Student Senate and outreach programs. Yeah, so Evan and I both are graduate student senator representatives for our programs. Um, I ended up becoming the, the representative because no one had been a representative in my program for a while. Um, and so our graduate program director sent out an email like begging someone to finally do it and no one volunteered. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. And, and I ended up like loving it. It's, it's been an awesome experience. Um, Cause I was kind of naive before starting it about how um, important the Senate is here for like helping graduate student life and issues that we're facing and working with administration. And that's something I really care about. Um, and so I've had a, a really fun time working on different like subgroups like we have a food insecurity group looking at um, graduate students who don't have enough food and why um, and trying to work with administration to like fix those causes because um, it's actually a really widespread issue which is sad. Um, I, uh, I can relate to your experience ending up on the grad student senate um, so I this happened to me too this is kind of a divergence but um, <laughs> I got an email one day when I was a master's student here a few years ago um, that said congratulations on being elected to the grad student <laughs> senate which was incredibly mysterious to me because I had not run for the grad student senate um, I guess I'm guessing there's some departments where it's more competitive but maybe in the sciences people are just so focused on their research that it's, it feels like an, a lot of extra work but uh, basically only one person in my department had run and so one person I think wrote in my name and that that resulted in election <laughs> um, and I could not find that person to oh. save my life um, my my prime suspect is the other senator <laughs> who I think maybe didn't want to do it alone, but it never owned up to that that's how I oh, became geez. senator too I was sat down by an outgoing senator and they said look Evan 
<laughs> can you please do this? <laughs> I've asked so many other people, and I, someone has to do it, and can't you do it? And I said, okay, I'll go to a meeting and see what it's like before. And then there was free food. Oh, and I said, all right, this sounds like a nice way to spend uh, once, well, just two hours a month, and you get a nice meal. And, and But like Laura said, it's um, such an important responsibility and role to advocate for graduate students and to try to understand the needs of our departments um, and uh, advocate on, on our, our, our friends and colleagues' behalf. Um, and that there's not, at, there's really only two representative bodies for graduate students on campus. There's the Senate and the union, the graduate employee organization. And we work on different topics. Um, and so we, uh, and if you're, if you're not an employee, but you're still a grad student, then that's where we, we cover you. So um, it's been a great chance to learn about how the university works and to um, learn how my department works and to get to meet other grad students. So, and the food is nice. It's pizza <laughs> and, and like curry and that's awesome. Coffee. So the Harvard forest is a really well-studied forest, right? Do you want to talk about mm -hmm. that a little bit? It's a long-term ecological research site. So I think it's partially funded through NSF. I forget exactly how that like title is given. Um, but basically it just means it's a site that's that a bunch of studies are happening and it's been happening um, for a long time and so it's kind of contributing to our it, it's a regular a regularly contributing um i don't know how to say this it it gives us a bunch of knowledge about like ecological systems and it's like a place that's like specific for research um, and for researchers to go either short term or long term because there are people who work at the harvard forest full time and then there are researchers who just like do their experiments there um and so what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted you to talk about the Harvard Forest because I've heard a lot about it as an environmental science yeah. student. Um, I don't know if other people, have you ever heard of the Harvard Forest, Matt? I want to say I have, but I probably haven't. <laughs> yeah, it's just like for science, it's kind of an important location where it's like very well studied across disciplines and it sort yeah. of serves as this like control. Like, oh, we study forests and like this is like a lot of the time if people study forests, this is like a forest where they're using as a, as a basis to... Well, so you have context because now that you're saying this, I'm like, oh yeah, all these things I could have said. Yeah, there are researchers there who study like the soil, so like microorganisms in the soil. They have these really cool plots where my advisor has done some work there where they have these like heated cables running through the soil. Um, and so it like heats up the soil, like um, modeling like what the temperatures will be in the future, like with climate change. And so it's looking at how like microorganisms are changing. You can like measure how the plants are responding to this and like the water stress because with hotter soils, there's going to be less moisture in the soil. Um, and so that's super cool. Do you know if it's a long-term ecological research site? Do, is it one of those? Yes. It is? I explained that like five minutes ago and couldn't explain what an LTER is. <laughs> can, I, can I give it a shot? Yeah. So there are these things all over the country, maybe the world? Definitely the country because yeah. they're funded by the National Science Foundation, yep. which is NSF. And these are LTERs, are long-term ecological research sites. And uh, they're, they're places where ecologists and uh, have been taking the same measurements for decades, well, depending on how old it is. Um, so there's, um, so Harvard Forest is one of them. Uh, there's some in Alaska, there's some in Hawaii, there's some in almost every state. I don't mm -hmm. know how many there are, probably like 40 or so. Yeah, there's quite a few. Um, and uh, and there's, it's such an important source of knowledge because any other scientist that goes and takes measurements of a place is doing it to answer a specific question, like how many lizards are in Phoenix? And they'll go do their lizard questions for however long they have a grant, maybe a few years, and then that's it. And we only know about lizards for a few years in Phoenix. But if there's a long-term ecological research site in Phoenix, which there is, then 
people will be measuring lizards in the same way for decades. And so we can say how lizard population has been changing in Arizona for the past 40 years as a result of urbanization. And we can actually answer that because we have system, you know, systematic data collection of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And they do the same thing in Harvard Forest and using the same protocols, I think, or like as you know, fit for place so that they can say how, well, there's no lizards in Harvard Forest. Well, the there might thing- be, but you, know, you could compare like tree growth in Harvard Forest and in Phoenix and over the same time span. You explained this way better than I did and or could have. But yeah, the other thing I was going to add to that, which is what reminded me of it, the other like benefit of a long-term ecological research site is that they take like environmental data and they have all of these like projects stored. So you can not only go back and like continue a project if you want to, but they have all this information stored so someone could look at it and be like, oh, well, they measured it this way 20 years ago. I want to measure it again now and compare. I can use their method so that everything is comparable. Or... Um, and like, or they could like look at like environmental variables and be like, oh, well, this this lizard population has changed. I wonder if it has to do with the weather. And they can look at how like the climate's changed over the past 20, 30 years. And it's all public because this is funded with our taxpayer mm-hmm. money. And and the idea is that there's these archives of publicly available data, so that as people come up with new questions, anybody, scientists, citizens, can go and access it and answer their own questions. And um, it's it's just so fantastic that our NSF funds these um, long-term ecological mm-hmm. research sites and um, I'm, I'm certainly hopeful that we continue funding these sites which you know if you stop funding or stop measuring for even a year or two then it can kind of jeopardize the whole operation um, and the long-term knowledge that we can gain from them. Yep. Yeah so in the way that like lab researchers have a control group right when they run some sort of experiment it, when you're doing environmental studies, it's a little bit harder because everything's changing all the time <laughs> in these interrelated ways. But this sort of provides, as best we can, like a control. Like, here's one spot that we've studied continuously in the same way. And so we have kind of more of a basis to make claims about long-term trends. Yep. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, for, you know, if you have if you have a LTER in the, like, Cascade Mountains and and you're doing any other study in the Cascade Mountains that's not at that site, then you have this reference of long-term data. And that's, or even if you start digging for cores and looking at climate data over time, you have a little, little bit of reference. Mm-hmm. And um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll like to talk more about the, uh, the urban LTERs in a bit. Is it relevant? Okay, yeah, we'll definitely get to that soon. Um, I just have one question, actually. Um, I've always been curious my whole life, um, what is like what's the definition of a forest compared to just like some trees kicking around and does a forest need to have trees to be a forest is that the is that the common thread that makes a forest thank you i don't know i don't know what defines a forest or even if there is like a very specific definition there probably is um but sometimes you'd be surprised we use these terms and there's actually no like Hmm. set definition for it there's different types of forests, and as far as I know, they're all delineated or um, characterized by like the types of trees that are growing there. Oh, okay. So, I would assume yes, but I honestly don't know. I don't, even though some of my work like has to do with forests, it's so it's such a small part of it that I honestly don't know that much about forests. Huh. Evan might know. I think you. Forest. I think the way like, you probably know when you're in a forest. Right? Well, like, I feel well. Sometimes I, I I think I'm in a forest, and then it turns out I'm just like in the woods. <laughs> I'd say that means you're it's both. <laughs> yeah. I, some people think of of like woods, like forest w- woods, as being more like out there. Okay. And forest as being anything with a lot of trees. 
But like if I'm okay. standing, if I'm like on a street corner and there's like five trees around mm-hmm. me, then I'm like, I'm not in the forest, I'm in the city. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. But mm-hmm. then other people would say, no, you're in the urban forest. And like all of our trees in the city are urban forest. So even though I don't feel like I'm in a forest because it's not like sticks and like dirt underneath my feet, I'm still in a forest. What I think matters is that there's a certain threshold of trees okay. that provide some amount of habitat or or, um, or or resources for animals or other life, uh, and and they start working together. So if you get enough, you get one tree, you got a little bit of shade. Mm-hmm. If you get two trees, you get a little bit more shade. You got three trees, maybe birds can go back and forth between the trees. They can eat different berries, different fruit. You get insects growing differently between the trees that the birds are eating. If you have only one tree, that's really boring, so I wouldn't call it a forest. No. But as soon as you have like enough trees, then you can start to have habitat. You have enough habitat, you can start to have like a little ecosystem. And that happens in cities, even if there's like five trees on a street. Right. So that's why I'd call it, I guess I'd call it an urban forest at this point, but... Um, so I'd say that's where the, what the difference is. Once you have enough trees, it c- becomes its own thing. And I think that's how you know when you're in a forest that you're like, oh, yeah, this is there's enough trees. I'm in the woods. Or I'm in a forest. I feel like it's sort of like asking when is a house a home. Oh, I, don't know. Wow. I just got goosebumps. <laughs> I see I had a friend from Queens and uh, I went to school in Albany with her and so like her Albany was like the woods to her in general (laughs) like the city of Albany and like yeah she would see like 20 trees in a median on the highway and she'd be like oh it's a forest let's pull over (laughs) (laughs) like let's go check out that forest so like I think yeah there's a lot of issue of perspective and just to throw like a monkey wrench in here like you got a whole lot of kelp in the ocean people be like that's a kelp forest Mm -hmm. what right yeah (laughs) Oh yeah, kelp not a, not a tree cool. in sight, but uh, no, I don't like that. At the all. question <laughs> is, if a, if a kelp falls in the ocean and no one's around to hear it, oh, is heaven. it still a forest? Wait, has that? No, that's not how it goes. If a yeah a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, does it still make noise? Or oh, that's like that. A, yeah. It makes a squishing noise. The mm. kelp. But if people aren't around to hear it, they can't interpret those sound waves as sound. Can you hear anything in the ocean? Does a dolphin count? If a dolphin mm. hears the yes. kelp. Yes. Dolphins they they have really people. good hearing, right? Yeah. They're like the second smartest mammal. Behind us, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Questionable. <laughs> You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. I'm your host, Laura Federuso, and today we are joined by Laura Hancock and Evan Curas, who are both students and researchers at UMass Amherst, and we have co-host Matt Woodland. Jumping back into it. Um, so I think uh, we're ready to move on and chat with Evan. Um, so uh, Evan, do you want to just go ahead and tell us about your research? Sure. So I'm working on a project now that's uh, pretty big big picture stuff about biodiversity in cities. And Laura used the word biodiversity before. And that's just like how many species there are in a place. So if you have a room full of guinea pigs, that's really low biodiversity. There's like one species. If you're in there, that's two because you're not a guinea pig. Unless, well, unless you're Laura. Um, and, but if you're in the woods, then you have... Uh, <laughs> everyone's laughing. <laughs> <laughs> it, we're laughing because we can clearly see that Laura's not a guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I can confirm yeah, this. For like the record, one. she's not, not a guinea pig. <laughs> 
Um, so if you're like in the forest or the woods or a kelp forest, there's lots of species around. Even if you have lots of trees that are all the same, there's like insects and birds and stuff. So that's a whole lot of biodiversity compared to the room full of guinea pigs. The technical terms for this is species richness and species evenness. Right. For anyone who's wondering. Biodiversity kind of captures... <laughs> <laughs> what is he really talking about? <laughs> biodiversity kind of captures those, both, both of those concepts. And there's, there's t different types of biodiversity that that await uh, how many guinea pigs versus how many trees and, and if that even matters. For example, if, the, like if, if per species richness, we really only care the different number of species. doesn't matter if there's one guinea pig or ten. Um, but uh, come back to that. Anyway, so <laughs> what, um, what I'm interested in is why do cities have different patterns of biodiversity? So I talked about being in a street corner and there's like five trees around. And in some cities, you might have like monocultures of trees, like all the trees on some streets are all the same. And that kind of looks nice. Uh, like honey locusts are these are these trees with really tiny leaflets that turn this like a blazing yellow in the fall. And and some like in Boston, there are streets that just lined with honey locusts and they're really pretty when they all change color at the same time or like in D.C. with the cherry blossoms. But that's really low biodiversity. Um, and that's a management choice, and it's fine. Uh, and uh, in other parts of the city, you might have really diverse street trees, or there might be parks with really different types of trees which host more animals. What I'm interested in is uh, the relationship between biodiversity in cities and, and income and wealth and socioeconomic status. So in some cities, we see that wealthier parts of the city have more biodiversity. If you have a more expensive home, if you make more money, you're more likely to be surrounded by more trees, more different types of trees. You're more likely to have different type of birds in your backyard, different types of insects around. The more kind of vibrant, biodiverse habitat around your house if you have more money. In that same city, if you have less money, you'll have the opposite, less types of trees, less types of birds. But in other cities, we see the opposite pattern, where if you have more money, you have less biodiversity. And if you have, in that same city, if you have less money, you have more biodiversity. The kind of pattern is switched. Uh, so, like, for example, in Raleigh, um, some researchers went around to people's homes and they measured the, all the insects that they could find. Uh, and they found that wealthier homes had more species of insects. Um, and in Sydney, they did the same thing and they found the opposite pattern. Why is Raleigh and Sydney different? Mm. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to answer with my my research. Um, and uh, yeah, off the top, they're on different continents, right? Oh, <laughs> let, me, let me write that down. Yeah, right. biogeography, Evan. Which which one is which? So wait, <laughs> I guess there's well, so so Raleigh, North Carolina, I'm guessing. Yeah, and yep. then Sydney, Sydney Australia. Australia. Yeah. Okay, so in some places, wealthy people have a variety of insects in their and, home, <laughs> and in other places, poor people have a variety of insects. So why is why is Raleigh and Sydney different? And is one preferable? Do you think like this is a complicated question, right? So like one's ecologically preferable, right? But yeah, as a homeowner, do you guys have like or somebody who even just rents, you know, like a position on would you rather have a, a variety of insects or would you rather just have like one to contend with? <laughs> well, so it depends. Like I don't know how much people pay attention to the variety of things around their house. And actually, when we survey people about how many species of birds they notice where they live. 
uh, versus how many birds they notice. People are more, w- more likely to notice abundance, mm. which is just, there's lots of birds where I live as opposed to diversity. There's lots of different species of birds where I live. Unless you're like a birder mm-hmm. or you're a gardener. If you're a gardener, you might notice plant diversity um, or, but you, and you might not notice bird diversity. So, uh, so first of all, I don't think people notice most of it, uh, but we do know that diversity is good for people, people's health and people's well-being, even if they're not paying attention to it. Um, the health is the really important part, that the greater diversity of insects, birds, trees, plants that surround where you live are, are providing a more, more robust ecosystem services. So that means cleaner air, uh, less like their plants are taking in pollutants so that you don't have to breathe them in. Um, and there's a more like aesthetic ecosystem services that even if you're not paying attention to the trees, that they'll, they'll look nice and they'll make you feel better. The shade will be more robust from trees. Um, and you're, and you're less likely to be affected by diseases that by more diversity together kind of creates this immunity safety net, Uh, especially for kids growing up in more biodiverse areas, uh, especially if they're spending any time outside playing around in their front yard or, uh, we found that more biodiversity kind of makes the soil healthier, and that is what kids are interacting with, which boosts their immune system. And this is like you know small studies here and there, so like I'm not a doctor prescribing you to play in the dirt, but um, that we, but we do know that biodiversity boosts immunity in, in some ways, and so it is better for people to live in more biodiverse settings, which creates this equity problem. Why is it that? richer people get to benefit from biodiversity in some cities and poor people don't but in other cities it's the opposite and 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 how do we how do we deal with that so that's the question that you're just starting to tackle yeah in the process do you have an answer yet or no <laughs> uh well i just discovered that sydney and Raleigh are on different continents so um <laughs> i think that that's might news be to me as well yeah yeah that could be the reason. <laughs> so that's actually, so this is what we're doing. We, we have a whole bunch of cities that people have looked at this relationship. People have measured biodiversity in richer parts of the city and poorer parts of the city. Um, and we take all those cities and we say, why in some of these cities do we see this relationship and in other cities we see a different relationship? And we then compare the you know, the traits of those cities. And it might be that all of the cities where wealthier people have more biodiversity are in North America, and all the cities that don't are in uh, Australia, and then we'll have a pretty easy answer to our question. Then we have to understand, well, what's the difference between North America and Australia? But it, first step is figuring out where, like, what, what is the differences between the cities? And then we can figure out why. Um, and so I like to think about it like, a, like if you're a judge in a cookie contest, and you know that they're good cookies, and you know that they're bad cookies, or at least not as good cookies, right? They are the finalists, and then the ones that didn't make it. You say, why do all these good cookies make the list? You look at the ingredients for all the good cookies, and you say, ah, they all have chocolate chips. (laughs) That might be why. Whereas all of the cookies, literally all the cookies have flour in them, so that's not the reason why. Flour can't be why some cookies are better than others, Mm -hmm. because they all have flour. So is it raisins? Well, a few of the winning cookies had raisins and a few of the not winning cookies had raisins, so that's not a good reason why. It's like this big logic puzzle that we're trying to do with cities from all over the world to figure out which are the features of cities that create different patterns. Just another observation. Um, different hemispheres also. <laughs> In addition uh, to different yeah. continents. I'll write that down, too. <laughs> um, so, cool. Um, 
So Evan, you also have done work with outdoor education? Yep, um, that's why I talked about one of my projects. The other one um, is about environmental education, outdoor education. Um, you know, I think of this, this research I already described is about biodiversity where people live and nature where people live. But uh, a lot of people experience nature not where they live. They might go to a park down the street. They might walk their dog in like a big loop. Um, for kids, uh, uh, one important way to experience nature is to go to a program, like a school program or a field trip where you go to Harvard Forest or you go to the city park and you might learn about trees or plants or something like that. Um, and so if, if, you're, if you're on your own, if you're not doing those activities and environmental education, these kind of programs are a great way to experience nature. Um, so my other project, I'm interested in how those experiences of nature in these kind of school programs, like what, what does that do for kids? Um, and how might that relate to the biodiversity where they live or you know, other, other things about the kids? Um, and uh, so I see them, these kind of things as related. And, you know, and similarly, they're both equity problems in that kids who have the most access to nature, which we know is good for you, um, tend to have more financial resources or material resources. And so environmental education might be a way to help everybody have access to nature, especially because it's like this formal program that you can bring kids to or that, um, as opposed to you know, the, the default nature where people live. So I'm interested in outdoor education. Um, I'm excited about it for my research and excited that we have so many great programs here in Massachusetts working on this problem. Cool. Um, kind of, I'm curious, like, Laura, how did, like, did you ever do any environmental programs when you were growing up? Do you remember? No, I actually generally hated being outside as a child. You hated being outside. Okay. I hated the feeling of dirt. I hated being dirty. I was kind of a germaphobe because my mom was. I got sunburned really easily. I was and still am super pale, as you can tell. Um, I hated extreme temperatures. <laughs> I just generally didn't want to be outside. I liked looking at nature. Like, I love nature documentaries. I loved, I used to live out in the country as a kid. Um, and so I loved like seeing all the diversity and like seeing animals and I loved animals, but I didn't really want to be in it. And that totally changed as I got older. And now I'm like, yeah, let's go out in like the backwoods and hmm. go backpacking, yeah. Did, did you do any like outdoor education type things, Evan, when you were younger? I did, but but like Laura, I didn't like it. I didn't like <laughs> nature. Uh, my mom would have to force me to go outside yeah. and play, go outside and play with your sister. Um, and I just wanted to be inside with my toys, um, mm -hmm. and or the TV. So my mom signed, like, put me, like, sent me to nature camp, and I like was I didn't like it because I'd get dirty and it's no fun. Well, I mean, it was, it was fun because you're like with your friends and stuff, but like the dirt wasn't as fun. Uh, but here we both are, um, and for me, the, the what happened was I I was a really serious musician in high school and growing up and. Uh, was planning to go to conservatory, play clarinet, um, like professionally, and like that's what I wanted to do. Uh, but then I was here. I was in nature camp, and I I went on this bird walk with uh, this naturalist who uh, made all. He was um, he was old and couldn't see very well, and he did all of his birding by ear, which means he just listened and knew what he was hearing, and could talk about. And he talked about how. Uh, different birds have different types of, of calls and different songs for different habitats and different arrangements of trees and stuff in order to, like, if you're in a desert, 
then when you sing your your song just goes and goes and goes whereas if you're in a forest you sing and then there's trees that like absorb it and I, here I was like a clarinetist who didn't really like being out in nature and and all of a sudden he was making these connections to music and to sound and uh, and I kind of was like a life-changing moment um, and so I still don't really like like nature is cool um, but I'm fascinated by uh, like how it works and and how uh, you know in this way like music was that connection for me I'm fascinated how we connect to nature um, and even for kids like us who don't like being outside there's other things that get us excited like music or like animals um, and uh, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, happy to that we still ended up in science and I know that there's so many kids who don't like nature maybe listening to this program but um, might still be fascinated by questions about how things work um, or the connections between nature and science and whatever they're interested in like music you know or documentaries or math yeah I feel like a lot of people just think like environmental biologists like are outside all the time and they're like dirty and in the sun and all that but there's a lot of people who like study yeah like the kind of um, intersection between like environment and psychology, environment and like mathematical modeling and all of these other things. Um, and so there's a wide variety of fields, not to try to force people listening to go into environmental biology. Right, but you both you both were, grew up not being into the outdoors and now you study conservation mm -hmm. and <laughs> wildlife and habitats, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, interesting. Matt, did you do any outdoor education programs? I'm just quizzing everybody about them. I've done uh, uh, none of those. As a kid, I, I'm, I'm quite the opposite. As a kid, I, um, well, I guess there was nothing inside, like, so it was just, um, so the only thing was things outside. <laughs> I didn't have really toys. I didn't have TV or anything like that. So by, yeah, by default, I had to enjoy the great outdoors because I was synonymous with just, like, enjoying life, I guess. And now I much prefer just like look, gazing out a window in adulthood. <laughs> like I can appreciate it, but I don't like the uh, I don't like the tactileness of the great outdoors. But I like the visual element. So just one of my senses is how I like to enjoy the great outdoors. How about the smells? Like Depend <laughs> depends on the smell. Ocean, sure. Forest, yeah. Um, what else? What is there any other smells in that? No, in I think great that's outdoors? it. Just the Garlic. two. Oh. Yeah, if you're in a field garlic of garlic mustard, mustard, it smells like garlic. Bat milk, before it, <laughs> oh, as long as it doesn't spoil. Uh, what do bats smell like? Great question. Um, kind of dusty. Probably depends on the species. <laughs> but I mean, on a, part of my job when I was a field tech was going into another fun fact about me um, was going into the abandoned mines from like the 1800s and caves and things like that. And so bat guano like has a very like bat poop has a very characteristic mm. smell. Um, very pungent. And so when you're going into these, um, these like mines and stuff, like it's very moldy and dusty and like, mo like oftentimes very moist. Um, and like, it just smells like bat poop and bats often smell like that. I don't and, think you'll like that. Uh, yeah. No. I can't describe it well, but there's, I, I think you really have to like bats to like the smell. <laughs> I don't know if I have any opinion on bats. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to form one by the uh, before the end of the show, though. I, so, Evan, have you what kind of what kind of conclusions did you come up with from your research about outdoor education? Do you have any conclusions or trends that you can note? Um, yeah, so I work with a program in Springfield, Massachusetts, um, 
It's called ECHOES, Environmental Center for Our Schools, and it's based in Forest Park. Um, it's part of the Springfield Public Schools, and I worked with the teachers, the ECHOES teachers, to uh, survey their students. Um, I surveyed the fifth grade students about the memories of the fourth grade program, and if any of you are listening and you did ECHOES, you probably remember catching frogs at the pond or catching tadpoles. Uh, those are kind of the two really big memories from the fourth grade. Also the bubblegum tree, uh, which is a black birch, and so if you taste it, it tastes kind of minty. Um, and and uh, that's the fourth grade program. And so we were curious, after kids do the fourth grade program, then what? You know, do they, do they want to go out and catch frogs again? Are they catching frogs again? Are they talking about these activities where they're exploring outside? Um, and, and how might that relate to you know, the biodiversity where they live, like what we were talking about before, or, you know, or maybe there are other outdoor activities? You know, to kids who, who are already doing things outside, when they go to Echoes, does that make, you know, how does that fit into their, their interests and their experiences? And, um, and so one of the things we found is that kids, um, kids don't really repeat the frog activities that much, you know, and that's probably because it's not so easy to find a pond where you can catch frogs again, but they talk about them a lot. Kids are talking about the, the program, the fourth grade program, even a year later. It's very memorable. Um, and, uh, and this program is about uh, fi almost 50 years old. Uh, it started in 1970. And so a lot of kids' parents have done this program, or they know people have done the program, this, their teachers have done the program, uncles, aunts, cousins, neighbors. Um, and so one of the other cool things we found is that if, if kids' parents have done the program, then kids are more likely to repeat those activities with their parents. Mm. So like your dad did echoes, and then you did echoes, and you're then more likely to go to the pond with your dad to look for frogs. Whereas if your parent didn't do echoes, um, then you you might still go and catch frogs, but you might not be saying that you're doing it with your your dad. You might be doing it with your friend or something like that. So it's what's fascinating to me is this kind of legacy of the program that you know maybe because it's been around for 50 years, maybe because it's part of the school district, so every kid gets to do it. The people talk about it, and um, and uh, and that kind of builds builds on itself. So that's really cool. I um I like had a friend who studied amphibians and reptiles in college and she would take me to a pond to, like when we were in college <laughs> uh, and she called it we, we would go to a pond to catch frogs and she called it herping yep herping. Have you heard mm. is this is oh, that's a the very... widely accepted term for oh, yeah. it yes which is short for like herpetology mm -hmm. Ing. Ing. <laughs> herpetology is amphibians and reptiles <laughs> yeah but i gotta say that when i wasn't with her i never tried to catch a frog <laughs> it's more fun with the people who know what they're doing you know because they can catch the stuff when you're a kid i don't know kids i feel like kids are better at catching stuff maybe because mm -hmm. they just don't they're not as worried about like falling into the pond <laughs> but like as an adult you're like oh a frog like that might be fun to catch but also like <laughs> i'm an adult so i probably <laughs> won't go catch that frog but yeah. if you're with like a friend who's a herpetologist and they're like snatch and then mm -hmm. they, you can like learn about the frog from them and um, but uh, but it, if you're listening to this program, like please don't hurt frogs while you're if you're catching them. But I do think it's like worth you know trying to interact with nature, and, and it's really ma a magical to hold a frog and feel its little heart beating, and hmm. uh, and certainly the kids experience that when I'm there with them. They you know some of them have never held a frog before, and so you you know watching them you know see it and then interact with it is like. It's a different. It's a whole different experience. 
I just have a few hundred questions on frogs real quick. <laughs> What's the difference between a frog and a toad? That is such a good question. And literally, like, all the kids want to know that. Um, so frogs tend to be more aquatic. They tend to, like, if you, cat, if you see a frog, you're probably at, like, a pond or something. Whereas toads are more, like, terrestrial, more, like, land-based. So if you see a toad, you're probably in a forest. Mm -hmm. um, but all frogs and toads, well, not all, but at least where we are, all frogs and toads, they start their life in the water as tadpoles. Hmm. Well, I guess they start as eggs. And they mm -hmm. hatch from the eggs as little tadpoles. So, like, toads, toad tadpoles, they're in the pond. But then as they, like, grow their little legs and they grow their little arms... They come out and then they like spend the rest of their time on land, except for when they come back to the pond to lay more eggs. Whereas frogs are spending a lot more time in the water anyway, once they're adults. Um, and so that's kind of cool. If you actually, if you spend some time looking at a pond and watching for tadpoles, you'll see that there's tadpoles of different sizes and mm -hmm. different colors, different, slightly different shapes. American toad tadpoles are like really tiny. There's like bullfrog tadpoles are really big. Mm. And um, and for the kids, like they they might have heard of tadpoles, but it doesn't that that like just to see different variety of tadpoles is really cool for them. I'd like yeah. to make a shout out to a, my a favorite pet, which was originally from the wild, and this is um, a snail named Snaily. Snaily, yeah. <laughs> I talk about Snaily a lot. So about five years ago, no, four, yeah, about five years ago um, in Boston, uh, my girlfriend had was walking to my apartment and found a snail on the street and put it in a cup and gave it to me and said, look, I brought you a pet. Aww. And and then we made a little habitat for it and um, and eventually got into a little terrarium. And then I left the country and gave Snaily to my mom to take care of. And my mom has been taking care of Snaily for the past three, four years. And Snaily is alive and well. Uh, and my mom is a kindergarten teacher and has uh, brought Snaily into her classroom and does all this curriculum around snails and the kids love Snaily and it's been amazing for them to learn about Snaily thanks to this street snail that was found on the street and somehow survived <laughs> for five years and just recently Snaily gave birth. Really? What? Wow. Yeah. Well, my mom found a second snail which she named <laughs> Friend. Okay. And now Friend, 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 <laughs> uh, friend. so Snaily and Friend. <laughs> And so Friend and Snaily are together in a tank, and then, you know, they do their snail business. And, and so this <laughs> new baby um, my mom has named Snend. Mm, nice. Comp <laughs> so I'm glad that's not how my parents named me. <laughs> just yeah. a mashup of their names. <laughs> Wait, so did the, the oh, snail no. just had one baby? Uh, it's likely that they had many, like they made a little pile. Uh -huh. um, but my mom has only found one, like, like got like big enough mm -hmm. yeah i'm not all i know is from the tick pictures she sends me on mm -hmm. on like almost daily of, like, this, <laughs> the snails, so. daily updates with snail yeah. did you know i just learned this that snails are hermaphrodites Whoa. yeah so that when they when they mate they mutually impregnate each other so i said snaily gave birth but i'm not really sure which yeah. one of them gave birth that's a good point but it yeah. is definitely a snaily's <laughs> offspring yeah. yeah well some snails can reproduce with themselves Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. So it, it might actually be just friend and friend. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of mystery unless those kindergartners get into, like, some genetic experiments. Yeah. yeah. Is it true that a slug is merely a poor man's snail? <laughs> <laughs> 
Laura um, told me that. <laughs> uh, maybe in the eating sense, but um, if you <laughs> snails have mud of their organs in the space where their shells are, okay. whereas slugs, they don't have a shell, so all what you see is what you get. So slugs are uh, homeless snails. No, they're oh. they're just very different animals. Oh, that just different. just look okay. the same. Yeah, I mean they're related to each other, but uh, but they're very very divergent, and their whole design of their bodies are different. And mm. so you know you can't take the shell off of a snail and then turn right. it into a slug. Um, you would kill it. Uh, I think we're ready to move on to the last segment of the show, um, which is a game that I created called GTA. <laughs> Guess that acronym. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and so basically, I, I, uh, I wanted to create this game because I feel like in the sciences, we have a lot of acronyms. We use like language that may not be accessible to a lot of people because you know, once you're entrenched in a field, you kind of get used to communicating about certain things. And you, so like earlier, Laura, you brought up like the REU program. And I knew what that is because I was part of it too. Uh, <laughs> but REU stands for Research Experience Oh, I thought you were going to have that as one of your Oh, I should have made, Matt, I should have made Matt guess that one. I wasn't you're listening. Right. I can still guess. <laughs> um, but so I have, I have a list of acronyms here that I, I'm going to have Matt guess. And then we'll see if um, Laura and Evan know them too. They're all kind of conservation related acronyms. So the first one is IUCN. Matt, do you want to take a guess at I'll what IUCN could be? Um, International University Conservation. Uh, I can't think of any word that begins with N. <laughs> <laughs> do you, is this an acronym that's familiar to you guys? I don't know what it stands for, but I know what it is International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Yeah, ding, you're ding, pretty ding. close for two of them. Yeah, yeah you I got uh, you I got said. two out of the three words <laughs> that you guessed. Okay, let's go down a notch. FWS. FWS. I want to say federal. <laughs> I want to say wild federal wildlife s- services. <gasps> Ooh, really close. Safety. Yeah. Really close. Science. <laughs> is it the F is the wrong part, correct? Oh, okay. Hold yeah. on. That's yeah. pretty damn Okay. Um, <laughs> give me a clue what it is. <laughs> does what that, does it rhyme with? How many It syllables? sounds like Laura knows it. <laughs> Maybe Evan, too. Yeah. Well, I should have. I did work kind of with them, Fish and Wildlife Services. Uh, see, I thought you were going to say a few words, and then I would just tell you the first letter of each word. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was. That's what I thought an acronym was. I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> okay, we have one more. Um... G-I-S. G-I-S, you say. G-I-S. G is probably for, um, I want to say the G's for um, granite. That's science, right? Is granite science? (laughs) Definitely. I want to go with industries. Industries doesn't really sound, that sounds like business, not science. Industries. I sh- probably shouldn't say industries. What's more of a su- ice? That's made out of science, right? <laughs> no, but that's okay. So I'm gonna go with granite. Insight. Okay, granite insight. I'm gonna. Okay, I'm gonna start with the S. Services. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good, right? You guys know this one? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's such a. It's such a. 
Oh, you probably give me an easy one, but I'm I'm sorry. These guys are gonna. Do you think they're gonna realize I'm not actually much of a scientist? Is this a cruel game? Like I no, feel like good. okay. Well, it's like I, <laughs> I should feel like learn. you're taking it much more seriously than Taylor did last. Oh really? Week. I don't know. I, I don't Taylor would have been way. like Starburst. Oh, he would have just said. Well, I really am trying to guess. You're treating it as high stakes, you, despite yeah. the fact that there's I guess no I don't actual know the rewards. Okay, so I'm gonna go with services. I'm gonna go with granite, and then I want to say in the middle one, I'm just gonna go with like ice. <laughs> granite Some ice services. granite ice <laughs> oh well now when you string it together it sounds foolish uh. starting with the last letter is an interesting well, you know the thing you know when when it, when I, roads ice over in winter and municipalities add salt to it mm-hmm. that salt is actually pretty damaging for the habitats that surround the roads it leaches into the soil and can be bad for plants so Actually, the granite ice services provides a really important federal function by using granite crystals to melt ice so that we're not, uh, you know, soaking our habitats with salt. So um, this is actually the, the way of the future and uh, important uh, you agency. Re- you really know how to make a dumb guy feel smart. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's actually not, not true, though. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. That was all made up. You can't use granite to clean the roads. <laughs> you can't. Don't try that at home. No. Okay, do you guys want to step in? What, what does GIS stand for? You can for? say it if you want. It's a ge- well, it's either Geographic Information Systems or Geographic Information Science, mm. depending on the, you know, the field or the application. Mm. Um, this is like using uh, mapping software to answer spatial uh, problems. Our questions. So, you, do you use GIS, Laura? A lot of geologists do. Um, yeah, sometimes for maps. I've never used GIS. Yeah. No. No. We could do that sometime if you want. (laughs) It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Okay, well, that's the end of our show. Thank you so much, Laura and Evan and Matt, for joining me. Thank you, Laura, for having us. Thank you very much, Laura. This is great. Thanks. Okay, well, have a good day, you guys. Bye. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura with guest co-hosts Matt Woodland and guest researchers Laura Hancock and Evan Curis at UMass. The jingle at the beginning of our program was written and produced by our co-host today, Matt Woodland. Thank you for listening to 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst. Stick around for news coming right up.